Let's vote. How many of you feel like you need the Lord more now than you ever have before? Yeah. How many of you have found that life is just really pretty easy? Life is easy? Raise your hand if life is easy. Well, I, I want to give you my long sermon introduction warning right now. And so what, my, I'm going to give you a long sermon introduction right now. And I'm doing it on purpose. I have a strategy here because what I want to do is, and of course, obviously we're in uh, Matthew chapter 11 and verses 25 through 30. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30 are like the crown jewel of invitations in the Bible. And when we get there, we're all, it's like the sun's going to come out and a rainbow's going to arch over the sky because we have one of the most beautiful invitations in the Bible from our Savior, the Lord Jesus. But to get there, and for that to really lay on our soul with weight, I have a long introduction. All right? Now let's talk about this. How many of you agree, I think we already voted on this, that that life is kind of hard? And it's difficult. That's true. As a matter of fact, I would say it like this. Life is burden to anybody. If you never sinned, life would still be a burden. Life would still be a burden. Maybe this is how you say it. Maybe you don't say burden all the time. Maybe you say stress. Right? Uh, would you still be stressed even if you didn't sin? Well, I know what you're thinking. You think, I'd be stressed a lot less if I didn't sin, but you'd still be stressed. You still have bills to pay, right? You still have problems. You'd still have health things to worry about. You'd still have those crazy kids of yours. You'd still have that husband of yours, that wife of yours. You would still live here in the, the greater Detroit area. You'd just have burdens even if you never sinned. And people are burdened. Everybody you know is, I think you already agreed you are. Now to complicate that, notice the second thing. So first of all, life is a burden. Now add to life the burden of sin, and now you've really got a problem, right? I like to say it this way, nothing complicates life like sin. Would you agree with that? Nothing complicates life like sin. How many of you agree that that is like the world's greatest understatement? Sin seriously complicates our life. I don't know about you, I have personal experience with that. You know, you've heard people say, oh, it's complicated. And I'm like, a lot of times that means there's been some sin involved, right? Because sin complicates life. And sin is a heavy burden. Along with sin comes guilt. Along with sin comes shame. Along with sin comes bondage. The Bible says that. You're a slave to your sin. And we all are. So life is hard even without sin. But of course, nobody gets through life without sin. And so you've got the burden of life. And then you have the burden of sin on top of the burden of life. I came face to face with that this week. I uh, got a phone call. I was out with my wife on a date. And uh, we like to go someplace uh, to eat and then after that we like to go to the bookstore and we have our sections of the bookstore that we go to she goes to her section i go to my section sometimes i get her coffee and i leave her with her coffee and her photography books and i go where the real men are among the queen of the sciences where the theology books are and uh so there i am i'm uh, i'm reading and i got a phone call every morning i get up in the morning and if it's a good day i remember to say god Please give me an opportunity to tell somebody today about the Lord. Please open somebody's heart today. I'd love to find somebody who's ripe for the picking today. And if not, Lord, help me to sow a seed. You know, something like that. Never those exact words. But on a good day, that's my prayer. This phone call was from a fella in our church, and he said, Hey, I have a friend who has a friend who has a need. He's dying, and he wants a Baptist pastor to come and see him. And I said, Well, I'll see him. I immediately called him. And immediately set up an appointment for the next day. It was Wednesday, so I said, 
you know, I have a meeting tonight. I don't think Pastor Discerns, you had a particular responsibility right in the meeting. I said, you know, we have a pastor that will come see you right now, or I'll come after the meeting, or I'll come tomorrow. And they said, I'd like to see you tomorrow. So tomorrow I get to go. I see this guy. And the guy says on the phone, he says he has a lot of sins to confess. He says he has a lot of sins to confess. And I'm like, I'm not surprised. You're laying on your deathbed, and you're thinking about eternal things, and you have a lot of sins to confess. Your theology might not be very good. You don't really need to call a Baptist minister and confess your sins to him. Amen? We know that. But this guy, was he, he had the burden, the weight of sin on his chest, and can you relate to that? That's so under... Can, can anybody relate to that? Of course you can. Thank you. We're going to work together. Remember, it's dialogical. I talk, you talk back. And that way, if you're wrong, I catch you. See what I mean? I'm like, aha! And we need to park there. So be very careful, you know, what you say. Yeah, so you get this weight. So think of this burden of life. Life is a burden. Life in the downriver might be a little more of a burden than other places in the world. A little less than a lot of places. And then life is complicated by, the burden of life is complicated. It's heavier because of sin. And that's a great understatement. Sin complicates lives immeasurably. But you understand, there is a devil, and he has a plan. He's had this plan going on for millennia. And his plan is to further complicate life even beyond that. He goes beyond sin, you understand? He goes beyond that life is a burden and that sin is a burden. And what he does is he likes to get people involved in false religion. Another way of saying it would be pseudo-spirituality or pseudo-religion or Maybe you could just call it, he likes them to have bad theology. That's what he likes. Because then what he can do is he can add to the burden of life, and he can like multiply the burdens of life. It's bad enough that you have to pay your bills, pay your taxes, and get everybody to work on time and school on time, and take care of your house. You sin. And now that's a big mess, and that's complicated. On top of that, you get religion, false religion, I mean. And so now you're trying to spin the place of false religion, and Satan has got you exactly where he wants you to be. Now, false religions are all over the world. In every culture of the world, through every time, in every place, there's false religion. Wherever you see mankind, you see false religion. And many of these false religions are anti-Christ. They're overtly ignore Christ, or they're anti-Christ religions. But many of the most subtle of these religions include the name of Christ. You remember this? I remember the Bible says, you know, did we not say unto you in that day, Lord, Lord, and he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. So there are people who, who, who say they're followers of Christ or they're in greater Christian groups, but they are still under the burden of false religion. So can you imagine how heavy their burden is? They got life to deal with, they got sin to deal with, and now they got religion, false religion to deal with. There is a context in the Bible where the Bible talks about true religion. True religion undefiled, the book of James. There's true religion. All religion isn't bad. Bad religion is really bad. And bad religion just adds to the burdens of life. It's just a crushing burden. As a matter of fact, I told you it was demonic, and it is, and I have chosen my words very carefully today. Listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3 says, I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is Christ. And so what is it when your mind is corrupted or gets rotten and you, you move away from the simplicity of reliance on Jesus Christ alone for salvation and for sanctification? What is that? That rottenness comes from the devil. That's where it comes from. This isn't my only Bible verse on that. I give you another one. And we're headed for Matthew. But listen to Galatians 3.1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's an interesting word, isn't it? 
Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? In other words, wasn't it enough that you have seen that Jesus Christ died for you? You've got to have something else. You've been bewitched. That's the devil. And so you have life. You have the burdens of life. You have sin. You have the burdens of sin and life because nothing complicates life like sin. And then you have false religion, pseudopiety. On top of that, I went to visit Bill. It's the guy's name. Little tiny house here in Taylor. Go into his house. He's eager to see me. Go into his bedroom. He's on his deathbed. We have a wonderful talk. Immediately as he opens his mouth and he talks, my heart is endeared to him because he's from Kentucky. I could tell immediately he was from Kentucky. Well, some of the people I love the most in the world are from Kentucky. And when people talk like they're from Kentucky, I remember this dark-eyed girl that I took out on a date and she had this most wonderful way of talking and now it's completely gone. You can't tell anymore. This guy was from Kentucky. I talked to him for a while, and I noticed his hand. On his hand was a Masonic ring. I don't know if you know anything about uh, Masonry, about uh, Freemasonry, but it's, a, it's an organization, it's a civic organization that people in, kind of quasi-religious type civic organization. They, they're nice people. They do a lot of nice things for people. But it occurred to me as I looked at this guy, and he had this Mason's ring there, that his involvement in that civic organization, which does a lot of nice things for a lot of people, was not enough when it came to his deathbed. He still needed somebody to come and help him get free of his sin. So the religions and the do-good things and all of that stuff, the civic involvement, anything that we do, this, this dear man still was burdened. And listen, you may think, well, I don't have any Masonic ring, but your religion can be the same thing if you rely on it. It's not going to be good enough to deliver you from the burden, the burden of life. Now we're ready to look at Matthew chapter 11. And I want, you to, I want to ask the question now that we have kind of set the table for it through my long sermon introduction. I want to ask the question, what, how in the world then can a person who's burdened by life and who's burdened by sin and who's burdened by false religion get under, out from underneath that pile of rocks? How? One word. Jesus Christ. That's two words. Jesus is the word. And, and coming to Jesus, that's how you get un, out from underneath that pile of rocks that is life and that is sin and that is religion, false religion. It's Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see in this text. Let's take our Bibles now. Look in Matthew chapter 11. And I'm going to read to you verses 25 through 30. Let's stand together now in special reverence for the Word of God as we've already heard it read. We'll read the entire text here together. Uh, read along silently as I read aloud. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Can you say amen to that? Be seated. This is a beautiful passage. And I want you to notice the four things here. 
and not as a basic outline, but just four things. Verses 25 and 26, it's a prayer. Jesus prays in verses 25 and 26. Jesus, after these things, you correlate the Gospels. If you kind of harmonize the Gospels, you see, that is after Jesus sent his disciples out, and he went out and taught, and then came back, and then he rebukes the cities. And so some of the cities received him, and some of the cities rejected him, some of the people received him, and some of the people rejected him. And so he's got this on his heart, and he's responding to this. Jesus is responding to the response of the people. When he prays this little prayer, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. That's interesting. I, I, for me, I found that the key to unlocking the meaning of this text was this question. What does the first section have to do with the second section? Now, we're all familiar with the second section of this, chapter, 20, chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, coming to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. But the first section is a little more obscure. We don't study it as often. And it would be easy to look at it and go, I'm not quite sure I understand that because it's got some heavy stuff in it, but this part, I like this. This is the part we sing songs about. The question to me was, they go together. How do they go together? When you get that figured out, it's like you got the aha moment where the text is like, oh... I understand what this is saying now when I get how these go together. Jesus' first thing, though, is a prayer, verses 25 and 26. Then he makes a statement there in verse 27. In verse 26, goes on, Even so, Father, for so it seemed right in your sight. Then he makes a statement in verse 27. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Interesting statement. Jesus' little tiny prayer, and Jesus' mysterious statement there. And then in verses 28 and 29, he gives what we all call an invitation. It's a beautiful invitation. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke, Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. For I'm meek and lowly at heart, you'll find rest for your souls. And then he makes a promise, verse 30, a promise, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Immediately you think, I follow Jesus, my life gets easy? Not so quick. Let's talk about that. The rabbis, the teaching of a rabbi was known as the yoke of a rabbi. So a teacher in Jesus' day had a means of, teach, a means of training that he went through. Most people believe that Jesus followed suit, and he actually went through, if you don't mind me using that little card-playing term for this, he actually followed suit. He went through this same kind of rabbinic training. It culminated in his work with John the Baptist. That's just kind of like educated guesswork. But we know that when a rabbi had a body of truth that he would give from the other rabbis that he was taught, it was called his yoke. Now, the rabbis in Jesus' day, they were like the, they were like the popular teachers in the, the cities that Jesus and his disciples went to, that many of them had rejected what he said and some had received it, had been under the influence of these rabbis, and these rabbis had a yoke. They had a yoke. They didn't get their yoke of teaching from a right understanding of the Old Testament law. They added to it. They added to it in a way that was just created an enormous burden. Listen to what Jesus says later on in Matthew 23 and verse 4. They bind, talking about these men, they bind heavy burdens that are hard to bear and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. He says they're creating a yoke that's too heavy for anybody to bear. They don't even do it themselves. Don't kid yourself. 
But now in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, listen to what the Bible says. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Commandments of Jesus. And His commandments are not burdensome. So you see, there's the yoke of these rabbis, but then there's the yoke of the rabbi, Jesus. Jesus spoke as one having authority. That was technical language that rabbis would have understood and people that understood the religion of that culture would have understood. He's a cut above when it comes to rabbis. You've got rabbis that don't speak with their own authority. They just quote other rabbis directly. But certain rabbis reached a level when they kind of got the ordination from another rabbi that they could speak with their own authority. Certainly Jesus had more authority than that. He's the one who wrote this book. But they understood that he had authority. They said he speaks as one having authority. And Jesus' authority is the big deal in this passage. And Jesus' authority is the big deal in Matthew. And Jesus' authority is the big deal in your life, too, while we're talking about it. So we have this. It's very interesting. We were in Jerusalem, and we were tunneling. We were walking through a tunnel, a fascinating tunnel. You've got the Wailing Wall and the Eastern Wall of the Temple. And then you have the tunnel that goes north from there. It goes along the Temple Mount. And so it's as close as you can get to the place where the Holy of Holies was. Now I'm the Temple of the Holy Spirit, and so are you if the Holy Spirit lives in you. So that's pretty sacred right there, right? The Spirit lives in you. You don't have to go somewhere. You just get on your knees, pray. You're in the Holy of Holies. You're in the Holy of Holies. Because Jesus said, he, because we have our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, not because of who you are, because he is, and he indwells you, and that's wonderful, and we could talk about that a long time. But we're walking through this tunnel, and here's a Hasidic Jew. Here's, a, here's an observant Orthodox Jew, and he's on a chair, and he's as close as he can press his face, and they say in whispered, reverent, hushed tones as we walk by this guy, he's getting as close as he can to the Holy of Holies. And as we walked by, I thought to myself, I have a copy of the New Testament in my hip pocket. And the book of Hebrews would certainly shed a lot of light on this. That dear man that was seeking God in that way, but rejecting Jesus, the Messiah, just needed the book of Hebrews to help him to understand the truth. Jesus, our high priest, what a wonderful thing. This yoke of teaching, this yoke of burden. In other words, we don't just kind of jet ahead. We don't get saved, get right with God by keeping the laws of God or men. We don't, we don't get saved, get right with God by keeping the laws of God or men. We don't. In other words, if somebody gives you a human yoke, it's just going to drown you. And this is the context, no doubt, where Jesus is saying a couple of things have to happen in order for us to be free from this burden or this yoke this, it's almost like a whirlpool. It's like a vortex, a demonic vortex of legalism pulling us away from God. And millions and millions and millions and millions of people in this world and millions of people who call themselves Christian in this world are being sucked into hell in a vortex of legalism. Believing that they have to keep the law in order to be saved. That they can keep the law in order to be saved. It's a form of legalism. Jesus kind of shows us two things in, in these sections. In the first section, you see God will reveal Jesus to you as truth. That's what needs to happen first. God reveals Jesus to you in a miraculous enlightenment in your heart. That's what he's talking about in the first section. And then you come to Jesus. Let's talk about the first thing first. God will reveal Jesus to you as truth. You have to have a spiritual enlightenment you have to have a miracle happen in your brain, your heart, your spirit, where the lights go on and you realize that Jesus is all that you need in order to be saved. This is a spiritual enlightenment. This has to happen to you. Nobody gets saved without it. 
People can kind of analyze, cross-analyze. They can read. They can be scholars. They can go to school. They can go to school on top of school. And they still can be locked in ignorance. And that's why Jesus says almost tongue-in-cheek. He certainly says with no question about it. He says with sarcasm. This has to be a sarcastic statement. It's not, a, it's not true on the face. It's a poetic way that Jesus is expressing himself. When Jesus says, you've hid these things from the wise and prudent. Listen, if you were wise and prudent, you would believe that God is God, Jesus is Jesus, and the gospel is true. He says he's hidden these things from the wise and prudent. He's using a poetic device. He's saying people who consider themselves wise and prudent. You understand? He's using sarcasm. Jesus used all kinds of forms of humor that are often kind of, you don't notice them because of the language. But it, no, no doubt about it here, Jesus is saying, Lord, these people, some of them have rejected us. Some of us have accepted us. And that's your will because you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and you revealed them unto babes. This isn't surprising us that some have rejected us. So you have this really strong, clear, obvious statement of the sovereignty of God in all things, and in particular in salvation and coming to Jesus. This is a statement of the sovereignty of God. And when you come to statements of the sovereignty of God, they make you scratch your head, don't they? You have lots of questions that pop up in your mind after that, that God's sovereignty and salvation. Can I make a suggestion to you that whenever you come to a statement of the sovereignty of God, it is a place for you to get on your knees and worship God. Statements of the sovereignty of God are, are statements of God's great, infinite mastery of the entire universe. It just should make us worship Him it's also a great comfort to us that we're witnessing and we're given a gospel and we've gone to cities and people have rejected. We come back and we said, I did what God wanted me to do. God, you do what you do. And that my responsibility is just telling the truth and, and doing what's right. What Jesus is saying here is it's not intelligence that shuts people out of the kingdom. It's intellectual pride that shuts people out of the kingdom. And he's saying something a little bit more. It's more than intellectual pride. It's, re- it's intellectual pride with a religious twist that will absolutely make it impossible for you to receive the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, or, in short, to follow Christ. Intellectual pride makes it impossible for you to follow Christ. I'm going to give you an example of this. If you and I wanted to go to a place that was just like full of pseudo-intellectualism, and we want to go to a place that was full of pride, and we want to go to a place that was full of... uh, the results of pseudo-intellectualism and pride, like a place where there was a lot of drunkenness and a lot of carrying on, a lot of immorality, where would we go? Well, I asked, a question, I asked that question to somebody this week, and they said, well, just about anywhere. I'm like, well, I'm afraid that's true. But then I said, what if you went to a university? Is that where you'd find it? They would say, oh, that's right. It's true, isn't it? All across our country and all across the world, if you want to find people who are filled with intellectual pride, pseudo-intellectual pride, and drunkenness, and partying, and debauchery, and sexual deviance, and defending all that, just go to any university in America, and you would find it on the campus of that university. Now you understand there's a lot of ignorant people that are sinful too. <laughs> it's just that that's, there's just something about pride that just, that God resists, you understand. It doesn't mean it's wrong to get an education, I like to read, I like to study myself, and it's, it's important. But I want to just tell you this. If we think that we can fully access an understanding of God through a proper education or logic or, or logical approach without the Spirit, and we reject Jesus Christ, then we're on our way to hell. We're smart people that are going to, a lot of smart people are going to be in hell. And a lot of common, regular folk that just simply took God at His word. And that's why you have this beautiful passage that, the, that Jesus said, Even so, Father, it seemed good in your sight, verse 27, 
All things have been delivered to me by my Father, except one who knows, uh, and, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and anyone, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, the one whom the Son reveals to him. If you want to know God, you must know the Son. If you want to know the Son, you must know God. You don't know either unless you know both. And he's revealed these things to babes. The idea is nursing infants. It talks about it in Psalm uh, 8. So the first step, if you want to call it step, so the first thing that has to happen is God reveals himself to us as truth. There's this in spiritual enlightenment. And that's what he's talking about in the first section there. The second section, then, we come to him and we submit to him and we take our, his yoke on us. We come to him. And, and, the, and the coming is kind of, in a sense, in, there are phases or examples. Like, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. You come, you take, you learn. What's Jesus saying? What does he mean by this? What he means is, if you're going to follow these guys that are going to lay a yoke on you that's going to drag you into hell, down a vortex to judgment of legalism, you're never going to be free of your burden. If you follow these guys, that's what's going to happen. But if you follow me, because I'm connected with the Father, and I'm God, you follow me, my yoke, my teaching, is easy and my burden is light. He's not saying your life is going to be easy. He said you'll find rest for what? Your souls. You'll find rest for your soul. And my friend, I don't know a lot about you, but I know you need rest for your soul. You've got to use a little rest for my body too, thank you. And you need rest for your soul and you need rest for your spirit. And there's only one place to go for that. Not religion, false religion. Not pseudo-intellectualism. But Jesus Christ. And only Jesus Christ. And so if you're laboring and you're struggling and you're frustrated, you might even be a Bible carrying, you know, call yourself a Christian and, and kind of trying to follow the dictates of Christianity, but you've still got this burden on your soul that's because you maybe haven't been enlightened and then come to Jesus to become His disciple. Then you follow Him. Disciple means that you're a learner of Jesus. He will give you His commands, but His commandments are not burdensome to you. It's like uh, directions. Here's how, you, here's how it works, and I'll give you the power to do it. So you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament is going to teach. Later, you learn this of Him. You be His disciple. That is what it's about. You being a disciple means that you'll also make disciples, because that's part of the deal. See, He says, being a disciple means I learn everything, and one of the first things I learn is to make disciples. So that's why we just keep harping on this, and that's why it's kind of like the big banner thing we're talking about this year and forever, until Jesus comes back, and that is this church is not here just to enjoy how cool it is to be a Christian and sing these wonderful songs. We're here to be disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. We are here to make disciples. And have you looked around? Potential disciples are everywhere you look. People who are burdened are everywhere you look. People whose lives are crushed by sin are everywhere you look. People whose lives are absolutely crushed by religion, false religion, are everywhere you look. You work with them. You study with them. You live with them. They're there like blueberries ripe for the picking. So what do we do? We go out and we tell them about Jesus. One of the commands he gave is not burdensome. It's actually delightful, fun, good, wonderful thing to do, and that we can do. In case you missed it, this passage is all about Jesus' exclusive authority. It's all about that. That's why I read it the way I did. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me. I am meek and lowly heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Those guys, don't follow them. Don't follow your own mind. 
alone, your own intellect. Don't follow false religions or people that want to lay laws on you. Follow Jesus Christ. Be His follower and learn His teaching. So Jesus' statement of His authority, His exclusive authority against the false claims of the Pharisees is the point of this passage. Hendrickson, a commentator, just wrote this, and I thought I'd just share it with you. I have a commentary because it's really interesting. When you look over what we've passed over in Matthew already, just these statements of Christ's authority, Hendrickson says this, From the preceding chapters, it's already become clear that Jesus, the Father's Son, has received authority over Satan, chapter 4, demons, chapter 8, human ailments and handicaps, chapter 9, winds and waves, chapter 8, body and soul, chapter 9, life and death, chapter 9, uh, his own disciples and other people, chapter 10, to save them, chapter 9, to judge them, chapter 7, and from chapter 28, we all know, chapter 28, we learn that he is given authority in heaven and on earth. So Jesus says, Lord, we know you are the Lord of heaven and earth. And at the end it says, and Jesus has authority in heaven and in earth. This is Matthew's statement. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that there is no authority like Jesus Christ, who still lives today and still knocks at your heart's door. So if we are followers of Jesus Christ, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now, if you know preaching very well, you know I just gave you two points, and we can't leave unless I give you a third point, or I'll have to have a cut in salary, and we don't want that. Now, do we? So let me give you the third point here, and i got to tell you, this one is the one where we might get our toes stepped on, so I'm just going to give you the old, you know, steel-toe boot warning here. Understand this. People who have been burdened by life, burdened by sin, and burdened by false religion, when they come to Jesus Christ are delivered, it ain't over yet. Because Satan then wants to still suck us back into the vortex of works for our sanctification. This is tricky. A lot of people do this. The same people who will clearly say, I believe salvation is by grace through faith alone, but my sanctification, I'm going to have to work on that one. That's my work. That's my job. That's not an exactly true statement. In other words, don't get sucked back into the vortex of legalism when it comes to your sanctification either. We're not saved by keeping a law, and we're not sanctified by keeping the law. If you remember, and you can go back and listen to the podcast if you're really hardcore, and my messages that I preached here in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, Roman, it was about sanctification, right? That was the sanctification section. And Romans 6 was saying, oh, shall we just like plunge into sin since we have God's grace, which a lot of you are doing, a lot of you are doing. Oh, I have God's grace, so I'm just going to plunge into sin. Don't do that. God forbid is the word. God forbid. You guys that are doing that need to stop doing that right now. But you can, okay, I want to stop doing that. What should I do? Well, chapter 7 is, a lot of people say, well, one of the ways to deal with sin is just don't call it sin. Just plunge in and just say, God's grace. And Paul says what? God forbid. That's a pretty strong language, right? Chapter 7 is like, okay, how about the law? Lay the law on people. Give them more law and more law. Well, if that worked, the Pharisees would have had it put together. That didn't work. And it's not going to work for you. It's never worked for me. You know, a big, long list of, you do that first of the year, all the things I'm going to do. It's like, what are we like, the 15th? And most of you have broken them already. And so it's not going to be like, you know, human effort turning over. There's got to be something else going on. That's what chapter 8 is talking about in Romans. Chapter 6, don't plunge into sin and call it God's grace. That's not the way to deal with the sin problem. Chapter 7, don't lay the law on yourself for sanctification. That's not the way to deal with this. The law has its place in bringing a person to salvation and sanctification. Don't misunderstand. But it isn't the be-all and the end-all of salvation and the sanctification. Chapter 8 says it's the Holy Spirit power that's going to do that. We're saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
We're sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do we have human effort? Yes, we do. Yeah, we do. We apply human effort, but it'll never happen unless it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's something that God does in us. This is something we've got to get as a church, because when I talk about justification by faith alone, it's like, amen. When I talk about sanctification, it's like lots of quietness. I knew it was going to be that way. And so I prepared a written statement, because I don't want to be misunderstood. Let me read it to you. This is true of salvation. The same is true of sanctification. We're not saved by keeping the law under our own power. We're not sanctified by keeping the law under our own power, Romans 6 through 8. This is what Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 3 says, O foolish Galatians, who bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And then he gets the rhetorical question answered by the hearing of faith, right? And then he says, Are you so foolish, verse 3, having begun in the Spirit, you are now being made perfect by the flesh. You that understand salvation is by grace through faith, don't you understand that sanctification is not just you? The Holy Spirit works in you in order to sanctify you. And so you can get sucked back into the vortex of legalism. This is something that we want to be very careful about because this is common in our church and it's common in churches like ours. Listen up a little bit here. It's common to escape the yoke of bondage of legalism and be saved by grace but still get trapped in the air of legalism when it comes to sanctification. I hear it all the time. It subtly bubbles to the surface of our conversation and our prayers. I hear people praying this way. We default back to a demonic merit system. And it's a powerful vortex that will just suck us back down to continual defeat over and over and over again. It happens to everybody. Only by the grace of God and only by the truth of God is, are these things powerful enough to pull us out of that vortex. I don't want to have anything to do with that. I have had something to do with that in the past. But God, in his stern, relentless mercy, rubbed my nose in it, even as he prepared me with a unique message that I believe that I would have to pastor this flock. And I'll give you a personal example in a minute. But can you see why it is foolish and dark and demonic and counterproductive and wrong for us to give people the impression that we have a special code of conduct, a dress code, a rule book, a rigid schedule for them to qualify to follow God here? Can you see why that's wrong? Can you? Think about that just for a minute. Can you see why it's especially distasteful to God for us to obscure the simplicity of the gospel of the grace of God with rules that you can't find anywhere in this book? Cultural baggage. You can see now, can you see now how pharisaical that is? This has got to be rooted out of our church here at Evangel if we're going to live up to our good news name. It's got to be rooted out. And this isn't something that we just course correct on. It's something we repent of. See, when we have this legalism and sanctification, we need to see it, repent of it, turn from it, and don't lay it on other people. Otherwise, we're doing the same thing the Pharisees did, and we're creating a man-made yoke to put on people. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He's the one that's going to produce real sanctification in people. That other stuff is a house of cards. It looks good on the outside, but it's not going to hold out. So church is about 
helping people receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ and experience the power of the Holy Spirit for sanctification. It's not about moral reformation. It's not about cultural refinement. It's not a finishing school to polish the exterior of Christian civility. That's not what church is supposed to be. It's not a way to press people into what we think Christians should look like or talk like or act like. Church is not a place for us to meet, to rehearse our rules, and make people who have not quite gotten it together feel uncomfortable. That's not what church is about. God forbid that our church would become an organization that's designed to pressure people into outward compliance to extra-biblical opinions. There is no power in that. There is no freedom in that. There's no beauty in that. There's no gospel in that. That's a work of the flesh. It's not a work of the Spirit. God deliver evangel from that. Are you with me, church? I knew you would be thinking about that. I want to talk about that just for a minute. This is not a place to put people under bondage. It's a place to set people free. Let me give you a little big idea here in case you missed it. Nothing complicates life like sin. We agree on that one, right? Unless it's false religion. False religion adds a layer of complication that's demonic. It's a vortex of legalism. And no one sets us free like Jesus. Can I get a hearty amen right there? And whatever does not set us free isn't from Jesus. Because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Believe that? So come to Jesus, because only he can give you rest. It's too big to tweet, but work on it. That's it. Nothing complicates life like sin, unless it's false religion. And no one sets us free but Jesus. And whatever doesn't set us free is not from Jesus. So come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, because only only he can give you rest. And I promise you that I'll give you a personal experience. I think I'll give you this. Uh, my wife and I, you know, I think last week I told you the Bill Gothard story, how Bill Gothard wrote this basic seminar, how he went, and we just loved all that. It was very helpful to us. And Bill Gothard started a homeschooling program, and we jumped into the homeschooling program. Anything else Bill Gothard wanted to do? I was like, let's do this thing, man. It's a great guy. He's been used to God to help us. So we jump into the homeschooling program. We go to the meetings of the homeschooling program. Thousands of people are there. Thousands of people. They give us a big book, manual, singing, just amazing. Some of you have been to those meetings, just amazing meetings. And so we go, and we're like, wow, this is amazing. People are singing, and they're preaching, and they're memorizing scripture, and, and then they've got a homeschooling program. And, and, and Bill's a nice guy. He gets up, and he gives all kinds. He's very gifted at giving, like, detail. Here's how you do it. You get up at this time in the morning, and then you do this, and after that you do this, and after that you do this, and after that you do this. And I'm like, am I writing that down? He had this lady named Inga that came later from, you know, Germany. And she gave her detail, and I just kind of went, I was late, and I got I got a little second. Did you get that? She was like, I didn't either. So I, this was a long time ago, 1987, and Lois was pregnant with Heidi. But I remember those mornings getting up early, thinking, Oh God, I want my kids to live for God. I so want my kids to live for God. I so want my kids to live for God. I don't want them to do some of the things I've done. I want them to have a better experience than I've had. I want them to know God. I want them to love God. I'll do anything. And here's this man, he was saying, do this, do this, do this, do this. So the next, so I got all my little stuff in a box, and I drove home, and I got up in the morning, and, and I said, let's roll with this thing, you know, we're going to do every piece of this. We're not going to miss anything. We must, this is the desired outcome that we want. And so I got my box open, and I tried, and I failed 15 or 20 minutes into that. And I'd try again, and try again, and I never got it right. I never got close. I never got close to the ideal. I never got close to following a schedule. I never got close to doing all the, checking all the boxes. I never got close. 
And I had this burden on my heart about it. And then I would always, you know, come to the end of myself. I'd go, well, I just know this. I love Jesus. I love the Bible. I love my family. I'm going to try to serve God. I'm going to do the best to confess my sins when I sin. I'm going to ask my kids to live for God. I'm going to read the Bible to them. I'm going to do what I can do. But I can't do that thing. I can't do that program. I can't do it. And do you realize now, I look back, I realize that was a mercy. That was a mercy from God. This is just telling you my experience. I'm not putting anybody else down. I'm talking about me. It was a mercy from God. God's like, that's not the way. I love Bill Gothard. He's my friend. I'm speaking for him this summer. But Jesus didn't say, come into Bill. He said, come into me. He said, come into me. He didn't say, come into your Bill or whoever it is that you follow or whoever told you what the rules were. Listen, my friend, Jesus said, come unto me. Oh, there's something about, there's something sweet about that. There's something light about that. There's something wonderful about that. Come unto me, those of you who are laboring or heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. And then I, before I came here, I want to come directly here. God didn't let me. He took me over to the IBLP headquarters. I worked directly with Bill, and his office was here. Mine was right here. Little door right in between. Every day I talked with families that had taken their box home and opened their box and done their very best to lead their families and keep all those little ideas And some of those that were able to do it were like deeper, kind of sucked into an external trap than those of us who weren't able to do it so we didn't have any hope but to just default on the Lord. Can you understand here, I'm not talking about another minister, another man. That's not important. I'm talking about me and what God took my soul through and how he brought me here to to tell you this message. And that is this message. I told the public committee, when they asked me to come, I remember sitting in the basement over there at home and looking and saying, I just want to go to a local church and preach the gospel. I just want to go to a local church and preach the gospel. That was the cheering point of my message right there. You missed it. I just want to preach the gospel. I want to talk about Jesus and Him crucified. I want to talk about believing in Jesus and having my sins forgiven, being filled with the Holy Spirit and living for God. That's all our kids need. They need Jesus. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. How wonderful is that? That's pretty wonderful. So I want you to imagine with me a church. A church that helps set people free. A church of people who are set free, who help people get set free. And God, in a miraculous work of sanctification and salvation, produces real holiness in those people. And those people, out of a part of that, are going out into the community, and they got a circle of influence, and they're influencing the people. Let me show you a quick uh, a way this can look. And I've showed you this before. It's just I'm going to keep talking about this. I'll do the quick version here. Here's here's a, a, a practical application you can take if you want to, but our yoke is easy, our burden is light. You don't have to do this. You just decide, okay? Get a prayer partner. This might be a way, a, a means of grace for you. Get a prayer partner. It might be your husband, wife. could be somebody else. Maybe that'd be good. Get a prayer partner, and then this is kind of like a list like I've showed you before. It's just a suggested, some ideas. Don't take it as a legalistic burden, okay? Get a, get a, a prayer partner, and then um, start praying for your circle of influence with that prayer partner. And then love the people in that circle of influence and get to know them. Remember how I said feel around the edge of their soul for the cracks? That's where the gospel's going to go in later. And then learn to explain the gospel. We'll help you with this. If you need help, tell us. We'll help you. Cool ways to learn to explain the gospel. Get it down so you can explain the gospel. And then seek an opening for the gospel. It's just that simple. You get it? Get a prayer partner. Your circle of influence is your prayer list. This is the way we get evangel on her knees as a church. We all pray because we all got a partner to pray with and we're all praying and we're all, the natural thing is I'm your follower, Jesus, what are your commands? You haven't been baptized yet? That'd be the first command, right? Jesus says. And then what other command? Go into all the world. All right, how do you want me to do that, Lord? You might think, I don't know, that's scary. 
I get nervous, I get worried. Remember my prayer? You start praying and you just say, God, I want to I be used of you. Now some are going to be like, they're going to have amazing fruit and they get lots of opportunities. I get, you pay me to work full time, so I get to be in a place where I'm always, I, miss, it's, it's, I get more opportunities. But then you're among uh, people that I'm not near. So uh, I'll just tell you this, there's nothing sweeter in the whole world then when you get to be in a position where you're influencing people to be set free, when you're helping people get free. Take, let's go back to Bill's house. Little house, little Bill, the guy that was dying. Little house in Taylor. I go into his house. The guy is so sweet, so hungry, so eager to listen, even though he's struggling to understand because he's dying and he's sick. And he listens and I explain to him, I was like, do you understand this? No. I don't quite get it. I go back over it again. I, I, I explain parts he doesn't understand. I said, Bill, do you understand this? Tell me what I just told you. He tells me. I Tell me again, Bill. He tells me again. And that 85-year-old man was born anew on Thursday at noon. And I got out of my car, and I couldn't drive away. I just went over to the curb, and I cried. And I said, Jesus, thank you, thank you. I love you, thank you. Just praise him and thank him. I thought, it's like blueberry picking in January. You know? You go blueberry picking and you know how you, you know, how you know when a, the blueberries are ripe. What happens? They just fall off in your hands. And you know, if they don't fall off in your hands, you tell them the truth. As you continue to tell folks the truth about how God set you free and how God can set them free, one of these days you'll touch one, it'll fall off in your hands, then you'll have a little worship session and you'll praise him, you'll thank him for who he is, Church, can you imagine our church being that kind of church that the 600 members of Evangel live up to their name to make disciples? Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that be wonderful? There's still some of you that still need to come to Jesus. And you may need to come to Jesus for salvation. You may need to come to Jesus for sanctification. And you've been working it. It's, been your, it's not been working for you. And you need to, to give yourself to God. Yes, yes there's effort in sanctification. But the Spirit inspires the effort, and the Spirit brings the effort to fruition in your sanctification. And so we've arranged for us an invitational song for you to sing. I'd like to ask you to stand together, and Caleb's going to lead us in a song of invitation. And as you sing, you do as the Lord directs you to do. Maybe you're going to stand where you are, and you're going to talk with the Lord, and you're going to have a, a prayer to the Lord. Or maybe you'd like to kneel, that's fine, and come and kneel, that's fine. And if you'd like somebody to give you counsel, come and take my hand. Let's sing together.